0: A mysterious, intriguing, and often misunderstood occupation. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Hacker Factory podcast. I'm your host, Philip Wiley, the Hacker Maker. And each episode, I have a person with a unique journey into uh, cybersecurity. And hopefully, their stories will resonate with you. And this episode, I've got someone on. It's a friend of mine that I've met through the cybersecurity community. He does a lot of speaking. A great person and a great person to have on the show because he really is big on mentoring and helping others get started out. So, thanks for joining, Matt.
2: Great. Thank you so much for having me, Philip. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: And it's great to have you. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure, absolutely. So I hail from the Cincinnati, Ohio area. Uh, what I do for a living is I do digital forensics and incident response, uh, primarily on the incident response side, probably mostly And uh, do a number of other things. As you mentioned, I do a lot of uh, public speaking, uh, different conferences and so forth. I also run a uh, local information security meetup group in the Cincinnati area called the Simpa Security SIG. And uh, we meet the third Thursday of every month from 6.30 p.m. Our local Eastern time to 9 p.m. And I also do a lot of other things. Um, A Hacking is Not a Crime Advocate, and I'm a technical mentor for WAMSA, which is the Women's Security Alliance.
1: Yeah, thanks for, for sharing about yourself. And just kind of before we kind of get into your story, just to share with people, you know, incident responses and digital forensics is a very important area for those who don't understand, you know, that's kind of when companies get breached then someone has to come in and investigate it and all that. So uh, would you mind sharing uh, what digital forensics and incident response is?
2: Sure. So digital forensics and incident response is to look for a suspected breach. And a lot of times those are things that get Um, reported through like an automated system, uh, some sort of alerting notification, um, and sometimes those things spill into ticketing systems. And those can come from a number of sources. So those can come from things like endpoint detection response, network detection response, uh, your IDS and IPS systems looking for intrusions. And sometimes these things are driven by thresholds. Sometimes they're driven by activity. And really it's to answer the who, what, where, why, when and how questions when you're looking into something to try to understand, have you been breached? Have you been compromised? Are you under an active attack? And then figuring out really from there, once you've established those things, answered those questions, uh, what actions then do you take? And uh, it's it's definitely a discipline that requires you know a lot of different. Um, n- n- areas of knowledge and it's uh for me it's exciting because it's always sort of in the trenches you're always where the action is so i think you know sometimes with penetration testing things move along uh most pen testers i know eh, report writing isn't maybe their favorite thing to do um but uh what's interesting then with with instant response is that you're always have something going on you're always looking into something or you know working to improve your skills i think when you get into like red team and doing adversarial emulation uh, those essentially are long ramp up times to uh, basically try to act the way a threat actor would for a relatively short amount of time and it seems like they probably spend a lot more time in the preparation of that than they do actually carrying out the engagement. Uh, So that's what I like about instant response is just that sort of hands on uh, always something happening, always something worth looking at and just sort of being on the forefront of where an attack might be uh, and trying to make those, you know, determinations and, and help uh, figure out what the action is.
1: Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool because, you know, you're, you're working in one area of cybersecurity that you're actually have the opportunity to to investigate and deal with with actual attackers whereas some areas you really don't deal that much with it so that that sounds pretty exciting
2: yeah, for me, it's you know sort of the fun thing. And it's, it's always fun. Uh, I always tell people, repeat after me, attribution is hard. And when I get that response back, I usually smile and say, yes, yes, it is. Uh, but you try to do that to the best of your ability. And sometimes you may not always understand the true origin of an attack. Uh, for example, somebody's behind a VPN node or a Tor exit node, uh, it's going to be very difficult, if not near impossible, to really know where those things started. It almost has to be an incident of epic proportions where you might have like a law enforcement involved or something like that. Uh, Fortunately, most of the things you're investigating um, aren't that serious. You do see a lot of Noise things that is you know sometimes there are vulnerability scanners for example that are essentially um, looking at your entire internet footprint to try to understand is there something vulnerable that we can attack further and uh, sometimes it's trying to head those things off at the pass and uh, you know those are things you might look to try to figure out you know can we can we block this how do we stop this from happening?
1: Yeah, that's one of the things too, you know, a lot of people that are drawn to pen testing or red teaming really like puzzles and a challenge. And it seems like you get a lot of that in incident response.
2: Yeah, I would definitely agree. There's a whole lot of piecing things together. And I think the other thing I like about incident response is you almost need a little bit of a jack of all trades sort of background to be effective at the job. And what I mean by that is that it helps if you have sort of a systems administration kind of background and a, you know, sort of blue team defending things type of background, um, because you have to understand what defense capabilities are and then how they work. And in order to make recommendations um, by the same token, you also have to know uh, a certain amount of offensive security just because you have to know what type of attacks are being leveraged against you and understand how those work. And I'm not saying I can do, Either of those at a you know full time level, nobody would mistake me, for example, for a full time penetration tester or you know a red teamer, somebody who does offensive security for a living. I'm not at that level. If I had time and enough energy to focus on that specifically, then I'm sure I could get to that level. But it would take some time to do so. But I have a decent enough understanding of the fundamentals that it really helps me um, do all of those things. And then you add another layer with incident response, which is knowing how to investigate and trying to understand what happened and, and looking for things that are bad. And sometimes they're not just technical things. I can think of a very recent example where, you know, I saw some stuff that looked like some really weird testing going on. It was eyebrow raising And the person that I was looking at, you know, you wouldn't think they would be somebody who would be specifically doing a whole lot around offensive security, but they were, definitely in the security space. And so sometimes you just reach out to a person and ask and say, hey, here's what we're seeing. This looks kind of weird. Can you explain what's going on here? And, you know, so these interpersonal things uh, I think is another thing that sort of is a differentiator with incident responses. Sometimes you just have to go talk to people um, because you could spend hours and hours and hours trying to investigate something, and understand what happened. Uh, sometimes you can get a quick explanation and like, oh yeah, here I was testing this completely other thing that it, you know, I didn't mean to trigger this kind of alert and they'll send you a link to the article that's maybe from Microsoft, for example, and you can see the command that they're executing right in that same, you know, article. And so at that point you can put the thing to rest. That's a whole lot easier than, you know, Digging through, you know, sort of the technical artifacts for hours and hours upon end. Um, You have to use good judgment, I think, as part of that. So it's one of the things where you have to have some interpersonal skills and normally when we think of that in the security space we're thinking of like social engineering and you know those sort of you know engagements that can also include physical penetration tests things of that nature but uh, incident response you actually get a little bit of that as well
1: that's kind of interesting too because you know i don't have much experience in that area but i know that there's a lot of cases things aren't always the way it seems because I had one of my first security jobs. We did a little bit of everything, and there was some suspicious stuff going on that this software vendor was reporting to us and come to find out it wasn't anything malicious. This developer that we had was just kind of downloading the source code and stuff and trying to reverse engineer and figure out how it worked, and we thought this guy was up to something nefarious or something. So we investigated and then come to find out when they talk to the guy says, no, I was just trying to figure out how the software worked. He was just downloading source code and, you know, reverse engineering it. So it wasn't anything bad at all, but you know, I'm sure you run into a lot of cases of things like that. Someone's doing something and it just looks, looks scary.
2: Indeed. And uh, it's funny that, that you mentioned that kind of an example. So I gave a talk, I've given it a number of places. It's called Lend Me Your IRs. And it was really my three favorite incident response investigations. And the first example I give was a, an unknown attachment that looked an awful lot like a known attack, which was uh, the flawed Amy rat, which is part of the Kurs botnet. And so what, why it was newsworthy was because it was targeting banks, but it was using Microsoft publisher files. And that's just not normally a file type you associate with the most common payloads. It's very common to see, you know, Word files, uh, even HTML file attachments, uh, Excel's with, or you know, f- spreadsheets with macros that can do all sorts of malicious, nefarious things. And even to an extent, uh, Adobe PDF files have had sort of that history, Um, but it was kind of attention grabbing because it was Microsoft Publisher. And it was funny because I talk about all this stuff I did to investigate this file. And the reason I was looking so heavily at the file is because I had a visitor come up to my desk and they were saying, hey, one of our VIPs got this email attachment. They tried to open it up on their smartphone and need to understand what happened here. I need you to drop whatever you're doing and we'll get you this attachment right away. We need to try to understand what happened here. And so when they first came over, I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll look into it. No problem. But then as they stood there and they kept talking and, you know, all of a sudden their anxiety just, you know, sort of, it on to me and then i started kind of getting worked up and i got this tunnel vision looking at this attachment and i spent all this time looking at the attachment and was just almost re- to the point of being ready to just throw in the towel go confiscate the device you know shut it down throw it in the forensics lab and then get the person issued a new device and move on and you know the, the last moment i just thought oh well this is silly because it can easily be spoofed but I should really look at the exif data um, and I did and it you know turned out it came from our test phishing vendor now I didn't just take that at face value because it could be spoofed I actually went through the mail server logs and actually you know pulled the headers and validated that yes it really did originate from our test phishing vendor but uh, yeah, that was one of those situations where it was kind of a painful lesson and especially painful for me because I've given a talk at a number of places called "Fishing Forensics. Is it just suspicious or is it malicious? In all of those cases, I always start with the email message headers. And the one time I don't because I had this person get me so tunnel vision focused on the attachment, I lost sight of my standard processes and procedures and I spent you know, literally hours looking at something that I should have been able to close out in minutes. Uh, but those are the painful lessons you learn. So then the next time when they roll around, you don't make that same mistake twice.
1: Yeah. Sometimes those hard lessons learned are the, are some of the most valuable ones. You know, you just, when you miss that process or you don't think about the basics, then we run into stuff like that. So, uh, So, you know, we kind of jumped into some of this stuff since it's really, really interesting topic to me and one that I really don't know enough about. But kind of how did you get into digital forensics and instant response? How did you get into that?
2: Uh, That's a great question. So I guess I should probably start back with my InfoSec journey. Uh, Growing up as a kid, computers weren't necessarily everywhere. Uh, Most of the communication that probably happened, you know, from you know, site to another site happened over modem, uh, for example. And, you know, I was just enthralled with with computers and computer technology and, and microcomputers really starting to come of age at that time and being a kid it was new and exciting you know that's how i, I viewed it and i was just always amazed at the technical wizards that could take something and sort of bend it to their will and uh you know it would respond and do what they wanted and it would sometimes be things that the designers never had in mind and uh it was just you know so always fascinating, and then you know the movie war games came out and that was just you know that was just you know next level it was just you know it was just exciting and it was you know those early childhood memories and, and working with computers and you know some of the early video game consoles that you know even ones that predate Nintendo uh, you know it was that uh, that's was was where the interest probably sparked and then uh, around 1995, I uh, got a hold of an Information Week magazine article, and Dan Farmer had authored uh, Satan, which is the security analysis tool for analyzing networks. And uh, he was really making a lot of headlines because he'd released this for free. And so for people listening, if if they're familiar with... Um, Tenable's Nessus scanner, and they're familiar with things like Metasploit. Uh, before those things existed, uh, really the security analysis tool for analyzing networks was the first open source utility that would scan for multiple vulnerabilities uh, and he'd released it for free. So there was a big debate happening at the time of whether this was a good thing or a bad thing, you know, who was using it and for what purposes, you know, people could use it to secure their networks, but they could also use it to try to break into networks. Uh, So it was a real novel concept. But what really struck me is that he was working for Sun Microsystems at the time. His entire job was computer security Back in 1995, that really wasn't a career path. Uh, it just, I never heard of anybody else that had a job focusing specifically on computer security. And so for me, I thought that was the most exciting thing. And uh, for anybody listening, I, I hope they don't get discouraged if they have a hard time landing that first information security job because it's really hard. Uh, It's probably one of the hardest job moves I ever had to make. Uh, In fact, it took me literally 20 years to make that 1995 until 2015 when I got my very first information security job opportunity. And um, what I did along the way is I spent a lot of time paying my dues, working in IT, Uh, did systems administration for quite a number of years. I'd always been really interested in information security, went to a ton of conferences, went to a lot of meetup events and so forth, but I wasn't real good at networking per se because I mostly kept to myself uh, except for people that I knew who they were. You know, I could you know maybe go and talk to them just to let them know how much I appreciated their work and their research and their information sharing. And uh, some pretty prominent people in the industry that, uh, um, you know, it, it wasn't really till a little bit later that I kind of got out of my shell a little bit and uh, I gave a talk at uh, DerbyCon 5, was the first big security conference talk I gave. Uh, and it was shortly after that that I actually got the opportunity to get in the, an information security job. Um, so for me, uh, it was kind of going from that system administration side to um, really doing security by extension just on what that job was uh until you know i had enough relationship established and I, if i had known back then that you know speak at a conference like DerbyCon, a high profile conference was the instant credibility i needed to get a job opportunity you know i probably wouldn't have waited so long but uh that's kind of how it it happened and uh you know it i was previously more of a security jack of all trades um before the role i have now and so i kind of had a chance to do a lot of things from you know vulnerability management and also uh doing some appsec sex stuff to do manual validation because just because a vulnerability scanner says something's vulnerable or not vulnerable doesn't mean that's really the case um, some things you have to look at firsthand and learn how to do that um so i've done a little bit of that stuff but for me the it it was just sort of that excitement i think of always being on the the front lines and tearing into and trying to answer the question and and where i was at uh with a previous employer um you know it was only a small part of what i did but i was really the only person we had that was you know capable of doing the incident response and you know looking at log files pouring through the sim looking at packets um, understanding what's happened and and had enough um, time spent studying offensive security to to know sort of what i was looking for and so that was really what i wanted to focus on and fortunately it worked out for me
1: so for anyone that's wanting to get into digital forensics and instant response, how would you rec? What would you recommend?
2: Um, I would recommend uh, a number of things. So make sure you really understand systems at the host level. Uh, make sure, you know, Linux and windows pretty well. Um, there are certain things you should know, like how to look at processes that are running on those kind of systems um, and knowing the commands and the tools or utilities you would do, uh, or you would use for that rather. And, you know, for example, just, just knowing in Linux that the, most of your log files are going to live under slash var slash log, uh, knowing in windows, for example, that the four base logs are going to be application, setup, uh, security and system. And just, knowing how to kind of look at those logs. Um, I would recommend anybody have at least a basic knowledge of knowing how to look at packets and like Wireshark utility, uh, something like that. You know, spend some time looking at PCAPs and and if you can find online exercises, uh, more power to you. Um, I think right now uh, it seems like there are a lot of range ranges ctfs and that sort of thing and they tend to slant a little heavy to the offensive security side um so one of the options that's out there uh in nisa N I S A is basically part of the European union and they actually have some great free resources out there. So they have some technical training and with those, you can download the virtual machines and they're pretty lightweight. So you don't need a monster system to, to run these. Uh, They also have the lab guides and really all the, the training modules that you need. Really everything is there and it's absolutely free. Um, so, for American audiences, um, you may have to get used to looking at international English. So, some words are spelled a little differently. For example, um, you may have to get comfortable with uh, you know um, UTC logs and you know things that are in Greenwich Mean Time, and as opposed to. Uh, you know, Eastern Standard Central Time or Pacific Standard Time, that type of thing. Um, but once you get past those things, uh, they've got really awesome training resources that are out there, absolutely free. Um, the other thing I would caution people of about ANISA is that they get into some legal legal aspects, and so some of those European laws don't necessarily translate to uh, United States uh, law. So. You always have to know that there's probably going to be some overlap there, but also take all of those things with a little bit of a grain of salt because some of the laws are going to be a little bit different from, you know, from European Union law to, uh, you know, what's legal there versus the United States. Uh, But for the most part, the training is is really good stuff and uh, really good places to start, I think.
1: So in uh, digital forensics and instant response, you know, a lot of other areas of security, sometimes certs can be important as that area. Uh, is it important to have certifications?
2: So I think this is a debate that rages a lot and I've, I see and appreciate all aspects of, of, you know, what people are saying, um, I think having some good base certifications is probably a good thing. Um, You know, CompTIA I think has some good vendor neutral certifications. Uh, If there's a specific employer that you're dying to get into the door to, and you know people that work there and and you might know, for example, that they're a, you know, diehard Cisco shop, just as an example, then getting those vendor certs might have a, carry a little more weight um uh, but then again if you have those cisco certs if you're applying to somewhere that predominantly uses palo alto security devices uh it can kind of hurt you there so you know if if you're just sort of looking within a specific market space i think probably the vendor neutral certs are probably the best type of things to look at um, I, I will say this. I have actually talked to uh, and helped interview some candidates that had some very impressive looking certs. Um, but then when we quiz them on basic, you know, working level knowledge, um, they fall a little flat. So I wouldn't recommend probably depending entirely too much on certifications. They have a good chance of getting you an interview but really your, your personality and your knowledge are the types of things that'll get you a job. And so what I would encourage people to do, I I don't want to discourage anybody from getting a certification, particularly if they're already working on it. Uh, They've invested a lot of time, energy, money, resources, whatever it is. Um, But I would just sort of caution them to kind of go beyond the certs. And so for myself, Um, I'm really just looking for people that are passionate. And you don't know that when you see a certification listed, if this person is really passionate about information security or they were just doing the certification um, just in the hopes that would help them get a job. You don't really know until you actually start interviewing and talking to those people. Uh, The things I think that would excite me are people that participate in things like CTFs, um, people that will, take time to write blog posts or articles and explain what they've learned about, um, you know, information security. And, you know, it's sort of those, those things I think that are, you don't see commonplace that, sort of help demonstrate that here's somebody taking time on their own, not just to pass an exam, but actually spend time really learning something. And then they're sharing that knowledge with others or they're contributing to other projects could even be an open source project. Uh, For example, I have a good friend, Miriam Weisner, who does, uh, um, she has a uh, couple open source projects that she's working on, and, and people that do that are often looking for for people to to help them. Um, so there's a lot of things that people can do that are a little outside that uh, traditional. Uh, qualification triangle of experience education and certification um so you know I, I would never discourage anybody from from you know education or certification but um you know there's ways to kind of get experience even if you don't have a job and so doing things like ctfs and write-ups um you know or you know just writing uh informational things maybe have a YouTube channel and, and put out some videos that uh, talk about what you are learning or what you've done, um, you know, really just spend some time playing around with, with stuff and, and teaching yourself that way. Um, I've, I've given a talk before that was titled, Learn by Doing, Improve by Showing and Telling. And I think there's a lot of, of, of useful just in that title. If you, if you take that to heart, that can really help you in your career.
1: Yeah, that's interesting that you, you mentioned that due by showing because there was actually a person in our local uh, community that was speaking at one of our, our local DEF CON group meeting. Uh, They're a recent grad and they did a talk on malware analysis. And one of the hiring managers for a large bank for their instant response department just happened to be watching and asked for his resume. So basically, to a degree, the guy kind of did a technical interview unknowingly and so like you mentioned doing the videos and stuff even speaking at conferences and for different groups and stuff is very important
2: yeah that's awesome and uh if i can just add real quick another thing that people should play around with are you know particularly if you're looking for digital forensics and incident response uh there's a linux desktop. Distribution called Remnux uh, that has a lot of fantastic tools in there. Um, I don't think it's the best resource, but even Kali Linux has some some forensic tools built into it. Um, But uh, I think Remnux, SANS, SIFT workstation, and FireEye has uh, a Windows um, basically. I can't really call it a distribution, but basically a platform with a lot of tools built into it that you can add into a windows vm and you can even use like an evaluation vm uh, for that purpose and it's called flare vm and uh, that has a lot of great windows tools so i think if you play around with those kind of things you learn the tools that are in those and uh, you know there's plenty of material for people that want to give a talk or or write about those kind of things but those have fantastic digital forensics tools malware analysis tools uh those sort of things that will you know essentially get you the skills that you really need to um you know impress people especially if they're looking for that that type of talent and having a hard time sourcing it
1: very very good very interesting advice so we're getting down towards the end of the show is there anything you'd like to share that we haven't discussed so far
2: I just want to thank you very much for the time. I really enjoyed doing this. I could probably sit here and do this for hours on end. I enjoy it so much, but uh, it's been uh, nice hearing from folks. Uh, So anybody wants to follow me uh, online on social media, uh, my Twitter handle is at Circa, which is at C3RKAH. So if anybody would like to follow me there, anytime I have speaking engagements at a conference coming up or a meetup group I'm running really pretty much anything i'm doing uh that's strictly an infosec handle so anybody can follow me there and uh you know sort of see what i'm up to and if i'm if i'm ever going somewhere where, where any of your listeners are definitely come talk to me hit me up i love love talking with people if anybody has questions advice or just you know wants to banter on things that i've done or what they're doing I'd love to talk to people so uh you know definitely feel free to reach out
1: Awesome thanks for, thanks for joining. It was honored to have you as a guest and for those wanting to get in touch with Matt we'll have his Twitter uh, in the show notes so we'll make it easier for you to find. So thanks again Matt.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's been been great. thank you.
1: Uh, thanks everyone for joining and we'll see you on the next episode.
2: Bugcrowd's Crowd's
0: award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hacker Factory podcast with Philip Wiley.